Wow, I am positively excited about this uh, upcoming message. And this series, this book of Acts, it's just amazing and it's, there's no doubt in my mind I had quite an amazing experience late last year that utterly transformed me and it's really something that I want to portray to everyone. So we get that out of there. Oh, yeah. And it's entirely around this idea of the Holy Spirit and how real he is and when we talk of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, how real this Holy Spirit is to us. And that's something we really want to convey throughout this reading of Acts. And we're going to be doing Acts differently this year. I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But fundamentally, we're talking about this idea of spirit. And we're going to be looking at Acts with this lens on, if you will, which is how is the Holy Spirit working and how is he going to be working in our lives today as a result. The Bible's not a textbook, it's not written like one. You don't get just a really clean definition of spirit and an exhaustive list of everything it does. You build a picture, like a lot of things in Scripture, you build a picture by immersing yourself in the Word and seeing how it comes together as it's portrayed over the full extent. A bit like the same way the disciples, when they're with Jesus, they're just with him year after year, moment after moment, and they get this knowledge not through a very discreet textbook style. It's just by immersing yourself in the presence of Jesus and in, in scripture. So spirit itself, if you're wondering what it is, it's literally, if you go back to the Hebrew word ruach, it's just breath or wind. It describes a kind of animating energy or life force within us. And in, when we talk of God's spirit, we're talking about the same kind of thing, God's spirit, energy, life coming through. But that's probably not particularly helpful until you start seeing it in reality. So we're going to explore that a little but just allow me to pray, if you will, briefly before we get into this in earnest. So, Father, I do not want to be here speaking because I know that uh, if it's just me talking, it may be intellectually all right, but it'll be devoid of life. So, Lord, I need you. I'm nothing without you. I need your spirit today. So I pray that you'll speak through me, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, communicate what you want, what's on your mind and on your heart this morning for us all, Father. Because your word is spirit and it is life. And I pray that will be true for us this morning. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if we look at the very first words in Acts, uh, it literally is in my former book, first four words, which means I can't get very far without going back because we've got a former book to look at. Acts, for those who are not aware, is the second part of a two-part account that Luke wrote to his dear friend Theophilus. The first is what we call the Gospel of Luke, and it describes the works of Jesus. And then he writes the book of Acts, and he talks about the former accounts. He says, now I've told you everything that Jesus did and what everything he taught, but now I'm going to tell you what happened afterwards. And I want to put what happened afterwards is because what happened afterwards had been massively uh, talked about earlier on, and this massive expectation had started to come about what is going to happen after Jesus leaves. And that's really the topic for today. We're dealing with Acts chapter 1, and the whole thing is a prelude to the entire book, and it is what is the expectation that we should have in relation to the Holy Spirit. Luke's interesting. He immediately talks about an earlier book, his, his, the Gospel of Luke. And spirit is a common word in the New Testament. I mean, it's up there. It's one of the top ten most frequently used kind of words. And, but when you get to the book of Luke, it is really explodes. It's everywhere. At right from the very beginning, it's like he's pointing out this kind of terminology and he uses it consistently. Uh, right at the beginning, we know the story of uh, Christmas um, and he describes Mary um, and, and the angel talking to Mary saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is the 
first little picture of what the Holy Spirit's like. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will have a child. In this case, it was dramatic. The very Son of God was consummated within her when the Holy Spirit came upon her. He then talks of John the Baptist. There's a prophecy around him saying he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And we know the dramatic ministry that he had. Elizabeth, his mother, it's funny, just a little thing, but uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth spontaneously, before she knows a thing, sees her come in and says, the mother of my Lord. And we're told here Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit as she said that. So we get a sense of what the Spirit's doing. It's telling, it's prophesying. Zacharias, who's the husband of Elizabeth, after John the Baptist is born, he had temporarily become mute as a result of his lack of faith. But he was, again, Luke 1, 67, says Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Moments later, we have a man named Simeon. We don't know much about him other than the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it's told that, he, that God himself, by his Spirit, had told him he would see the Christ. And sure enough, he went into a crowded temple full of people and instantly knew that baby there is the Christ. This is the nature of the Holy Spirit that we start to see described in Luke. And what's exciting is how it's even done in relation to Jesus himself, right at the beginning of his ministry. You have a kind of a quiet 30 years with Jesus in terms of the scriptural record, but also, as we understand, he didn't enter his ministry till the age of 30. And there is a dramatic transformation that occurs immediately before. In Luke 3.22, we're told he goes to John the Baptist, he's baptised, and at that point, we see the Holy Spirit descending upon him in bodily form like a dove. And Luke talks about it again and again straight after. He says, now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, having done that, returned from the Jordan where he was baptised and is led around by the Spirit in the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil and overcomes him. Immediately after this temptation, we're told, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He walks straight down to a little uh, synagogue in Nazareth, opens the word, and what's the first thing he's reading? He says, remember, Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This gives us a bit of a sense that Luke's getting out with the Holy Spirit. It's everywhere and it's doing all the major and amazing things of the work of God. It's being filled with the Spirit. And so we start with him. I think, okay, let's go straight into Acts. But what I want to do is actually just talk a little bit about how the Old Testament portrayed the same picture. And again, just this idea that you know, we don't have a clear definition so much as a picture that emerges really well as we look through the, the number of references. We're told literally verse 2 of the Bible, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's there in creation, just like God the Father, just like God the Son. And we're told that he sends forth his Spirit. They are created, we're told in the Psalms. So there's a creative force in the Spirit of God. We're told in Genesis 6 it was striving with sinners. And then we start to get a picture again where he actually pours out his Spirit on individual people. We're told of a Bezalel, and I don't even know how you pronounce that, so sorry about that, Bezalel in Exodus. We're told he is, uh, God says, I filled him with the Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit of God. And that was in this case to build the amazing craftsmanship required, or to have the amazing craftsmanship required to build the temple. An extraordinary knowledge of all these different kinds of metalworking and craftsmanship things that would enable a, a beautiful temple to be built. In Numbers 27, we talk about Joshua, the son of Nun, who was appointed, and God says, in him is the Spirit. In Judges 6, we're told the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Gideon uh, was a relatively timid man, but he ended up leading 300 men in what could be arguably said is one of the most stunning military victories in the whole of the world. 300 men against a mighty horde. 
which we would expect to be well over hundreds of thousands or in the hundreds of thousands of men defeated by this man. We're told of Samson, a lion comes to him and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. So we see these amazing acts of people as the spirit of the Lord comes upon them. We see this amazing foreknowledge we saw in people like Elizabeth and Zacharias and we told David says when, in, in 2 Samuel, we said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Ezekiel says, the spirit entered me when he spoke to me. The spirit's active when prophecy was being written. We're told the entire scripture is God breathed that the spirit inspired those who wrote. And of course, we'd see all this prophecy in relation to Jesus, that God's going to anoint him with his spirit. So this is the picture you start getting of what's the spirit like. So I'd rather than the definition, this is what the spirit does. And then that gives us this most startling prophecy in the book of Joel, uh, which I wanted to spend a little time on. In fact, we'll, we'll read it for everyone. Because this, this is a startling expectation God's giving to his people. Joel, we don't actually know exactly when it was written. We know that, uh, that essentially the people have been judged, a massive locust after locust had basically ravaged the land, uh, poor and destitute, and God had said, look, rend your hearts, and then he's telling them what's going to happen afterwards. Not only would he restore the land, but then he got to this point, says, and afterward, this is verse 28, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And what makes this so startling is you see the power that is evident in the spirit when it's filling people earlier in the Old Testament. Now he's saying something quite dramatic. I'm going to pour it out. It's a unique expression, but it's one that comes again and again when we talk about the spirit. It is like water. It is poured out. It comes out like rivers. He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. This is going to be something more than we have seen. And it's going to be on all people. It's not just going to be a select individual here and there. We do get these tastes of it in the Old Testament, but suddenly we're told, poured out on all people. And you get the bit of the nature of, you know, everyone's in this. It's not for grown men or elders, not for apostles. It's for sons and daughters, old men, young men, even servants. It says, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Verse 32 tells us, which is just skipping a wee bit in that prophecy, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So this picture by now that we're talking about the coming age that we live in. This is a time when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the time that we live in today. And this prophecy, I contend, is for today. So we get this is towards the end of the Old Testament, we have this picture of that something dramatic is going to happen through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, when he comes to this same topic, what does he do with it? He not only acknowledges it, he actually really expands on the idea, expands, this is going to come, this is something phenomenal. So we're told in, uh, in John, uh, Jesus stood up on the last day of the festival, and he's well known by this time, but he stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. We're told by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
we're getting that same kind of picture. God's going to pour it out. This thing's going to flow through people. And we know here, because John makes a point, he doesn't want to just leave you off. What, what did he actually mean by rivers of living water? He's, he makes it abundantly clear. It's got what we're going to read very shortly in Acts is what he's talking about. And Jesus would talk, in, in, his, in John, he's got this kind of teaching and prayer that's just sort of beautiful in the middle. A lot of people have this as their favourite chapters in John, I know. And he's just saying remarkable things over and over. He said, oh, the, the same works I do, you're going to be able to do. And he starts saying, but it, it's better for you guys that I go. And says, and I've got this passage here in John 14. He says, I'm going to ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And later he says, Very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. You're in the sense that the spirit is going to be coming and it is important. <laughs> in fact, it's the life-changing force by which we're going to see change in our own lives. And therefore, it is better that he's not here with us today, to this very day. And it's interesting, as we get to the end of Luke's, so we're nearly at this little preface thing, you know, in my former book, what did Luke end on? All right, at the end, Jesus died, he was raised to life again, he was with his disciples and he taught them. And at the very end he said, look, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. There it is again. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high, and when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple with praising God. I find that remarkable. We ended on this expectation. It's literally, okay, holding pattern now. This promise I've got for you is to come, and for now I need you to wait until such time as it's going to be fulfilled, and it is going to be fulfilled. So when we get to Acts chapter 1, we get this little picture. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. And if you just read that account, you would know, okay, this is the ending point. What's next? The promise of the Father. So he continues, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So this is really just a quick recap, a recap of almost the entire of the gospel. Where were we? Okay, this is, this is what we're teaching. And then he reminds them of where he ended. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, he's quoting John there about what he was going to do. It's just yet another reference. So you can get a sense of the expectations starting to build. Um, it is funny, I mean, if you look at all four Gospels, there's not, there's not many things that are repeated in every Gospel. You know, a lot of, you know, two, three, there's a lot of corroboration, but there's not a lot of things that get in every single gospel yet. This is one of those things that is repeated. All four gospels, they make note of this one reference. It's that John said, the one who comes after me, he said, I'm baptising you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptise you with spirit. Some of them have, and with spirit and with fire. And so we get this little interlude as the disciples gather around him and ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
You see, these men, while they've got a lot of teaching and they understand they haven't necessarily quite grasped yet what all is to come here, they're still thinking, oh, an earthly kingdom can come down and everything's going to change. But uh, he said to them, no, no, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority. Saying, no, no, this is not what we're talking about. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he points them back again. Way in Jerusalem, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem. This tells us a key role of the Holy Spirit fundamentally, doesn't it? They're there to wait there. They're not going straight out evangelizing. It says wait until you receive power and then you will be my witnesses, which tells us a key part of what the Spirit's about. It is fundamentally about witnessing, and we will be talking a lot about that in the coming series. We're seeing that a lot. That is essentially outreach and outward focusing. But I just want to kind of get to this point now where we're kind of sitting with the disciples at this point and ask these same questions for ourselves, because fundamentally, at this point, you can only imagine what they're waiting for. They've got all this promise, they have all this expectation, whether it's from Joel, from the teachings of Jesus, through these very last instructions, wait, something is going to happen, what is it? What's going to happen? How is this Holy Spirit going to come upon us? And that's where I really want to end. I want to end on this idea for ourselves. Do we actually have this kind of expectation in any sense at all, that the Holy Spirit comes upon us as part of our birthright? Now, there's obviously some little controversy around whether it's even relevant for today, and I don't really want to spend any time on it. You know, I could write, I could do a sermon on the ten points of cessationism and debunk each one. I don't think that would be particularly fruitful. But I do want to just make sure that we're clear that when we look at the scope of the Holy Spirit and how it's promised to His believers and how it's constantly tied with what's going to happen to those who believe, that is very difficult to exclude us from it. And if I'm the arguments that tend to try and diminish the scope or the extent of the spirit, I don't really come at because I see that this picture is brought out in Scripture that we are to experience this. You know, it's fundamental to Jesus' promises concerning us. And if you go back through history, it just happens time and time again. I've been reading a lot lately, just of previous works and awakenings, and it's just amazing when we think, oh, you know, maybe this is just all just some Pentecostal thing that we're talking about. But you know, when we talk about the Spirit and the way He works, it's nothing new. It's something that's been happening all along. And you can go back to, you know, the Great Awakening, long before they had these ideas, and you still see this expression of the Holy Spirit becoming very prominent, um, even down to Moravian times. This is 1700s, and they're experiencing things that we would describe potentially as modern phenomena, but it's not at all. We're talking about the character of the Holy Spirit that we've seen, how when he fills people, uh, dramatic things happen, whether it's in dramatic capability or outward acts of uh, service or in, in prophecy or just spontaneous knowledge that they could otherwise not know. The Spirit does these things and we're told this is our life now. We don't subscribe to any kind of view that somehow the scripture replaces that role. Um, and there certainly has been at you know, various points this idea of a, a perfect scripture somehow better than the, script, than, than the spirit. And we can't supplant the role of the Holy Spirit as the scripture shows in that way. So I won't spend any more time on that. You know, if, if the people struggle with that idea, by all means, have a chat with one of the elders or whatever. We're happy to talk about these things, but I don't want to waste too much time there. But I do want to talk about what is our response when we kind of see this Holy Spirit. This is something 
quite amazing and the expectation that the disciples had by this time should it be our expectation as well of what God can do in us. So let's look briefly at how the disciples responded to this. Because it said after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes. Jesus ascends before them. And the cloud hid him from their sight. And they're looking up intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this was their response. They knew that there was something to expect, something amazing. They have this great expectation, and we're going to see in subsequent weeks what it actually looked like for them. But this sense, they have an expectation, and they are waiting expectantly, and they are waiting in prayer. At the end of Luke, we're told they were, they were rejoicing. And they've come together and they are in constantly in prayer. And this is really the kind of idea where I want us to land now because I kind of look at my own life uh, over the last decade or so and I've just seen both in me and in what I guess I've read about awakening, I have a great desire that we would awaken ourselves to all the fullness of God, that as a church we would not be asleep or dead but that we'd be fully alive in every way. And to do that we kind of need to understand what does alive even look like? And that's really the purpose of what we're doing with Acts, this uh, over the coming weeks and months is we want to look at what the spirit looks like. We want to see what it looks like. We're not necessarily going to be identical, but we're looking for the equivalency. This is the same spirit we're told that rose Jesus from the dead and it's the same spirit we expect in ourselves if these promises are true. So my prayer is for awakening and what usually prefaces every awakening if you go through history and as I've seen as a microcosm in my own life is just some, some common elements. There, there's some kind of self-reflection so I'm kind of going, I'm not, this, this truth is not in my life. And I was saying this late last year. I, did, I look at the way this is and go, this is not me. You know, I'm not living like this. And that self-reflection, in my case, led to some repentance. Because I go, previously I would have thought, yeah, I am doing all right. You know, I kind of believe and you know, I'm serve, serving and whatnot. But I had to repent. I had to repent. No, I'm not, I'm not where God wants me to be. So looking at, at Acts, for some of us it'll be very challenging because it's going to be a mirror. And we're told in James, some of you look in the mirror and you turn away and forget what manner of man you are. You don't let it change you. So I want this to change us. I want to look in it and go, is, it, is this something honestly that we're just not there and we actually need to repent? The other things that come to mind is unity as well. And this is why we're kind of discussing this at the church level because we want to have a, a general understanding of the church as a whole and our part in it and have some unity about the idea of what the Holy Spirit is like, what we can expect from him. And to that end, we want to be together and united in this. And the most important expression of that you know, being united is in this. It's in prayer, being constantly in prayer. As some of you know, we've started up some extra prayer meetings and obviously we have you know, the Monday night prayer meeting um, going and, and in addition, I've been doing a monthly one, uh, which is just kind of an extended time to really just seek God without a particular agenda and we want to see a lot more of that. You know, all the times of awakening, whether it's in your own individual life or whether it's corporately, are marked by extraordinary prayer, as we say, leading up to it. And so it is my ask, it is my great object in this, is that we would 
get something of a desire that if I'm speaking anything to you and showing you what the spirit is like, that you're going, I want that. And if you don't have it, like if you have it, you'll, you'll be rejoicing with me because you go, I have this and what a beautiful privilege this thing is. And if you don't, I want you to recognise it. I want you to be honest. I'm self-reflecting. Go, I'm not, I don't have what this is describing. It's, it's not what I was led to believe. It's not what I'm led to believe when I look at the whole promises that are given by God from Joel through to the expectation Jesus gives us right through to this very last promises that, that Luke's telling us about in Acts. Do we have the Holy Spirit in this way? Does he fill us? So a lot of us know Jesus and John the Baptist said two things in quick succession in John. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's like in Joel, we told about everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. We grasp that. I trust we grasp that. We teach that. And we'll be teaching it more, don't worry, next couple of weeks especially. We'll be talking more about the gospel because fundamentally this Holy Spirit is about the gospel. But then he also says he's the baptizer in the Spirit. And we know we know him in that way as well. Do we know him not only as the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, but do we know him as the baptizer in the Spirit? And I just want to reflect again on this, this passage we read before. That anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Because I had no idea what that meant, to be honest. And then a few months ago, I got a taste of it. It's just something quite overwhelming when his spirit actually overwhelms you and it rushes out like a river. You can't help but tell everyone. You can't help but communicate what he's doing inside of you. You can't help but change you in a dramatic way. And this is what I'm saying, this river's of living water. Can we get a bit of a taste of what he wants to do with us? And I have no question there is more for me and, and for us. But can we get some sense of this rivers of living water in us and would we pray for that? Will we get this same spirit that existed in Jesus, that was upon Jesus, and would he fill us also as we read about in Acts? If you're like me... Um, in, in some ways, I had a taste of this many years ago, but uh, I let my intellect get in the way, quite frankly. I, was, I, I doubted, I, I was unsure of it all, and not only that, I just didn't really want to go through, all the, I guess, the, the outcomes and what happened. I mean, it transforms your life. Suddenly, sin is much more sin in your eyes, and things that you might have thought are okay to do are not really okay to do anymore. And it, it does, there is a, a danger in the way, from a fleshly point of view, this spirit's going to change you, and you may not want that. And so I, I certainly let my intellect get in the way. And you know, we, do, we talk about the scripture where it talks about this idea of repentance and not quenching. It says that you can, you can quench the spirit. It is, again, this water analogy that comes through. If you can have it poured out, if it can be flowing out of you, equally we're told it can be quenched. And I did that. And so again, I've, I've had to come and repent about these things, but I just want to give you a taste this morning of what the Spirit is like. I've done it with Scripture, and there's, look, there's a lot more in Scripture than this. I mean, I've, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Not only is there power, um, not only is there kind of dramatic change or foreknowledge or, or this, uh, this sense of his, Him being in you and able to speak through you. In my case, also a tremendous sense of assurance. And if you've read Romans 8, you'll, you'll see there a beautiful passage where he talks about the spirit, witnesses with our spirit about our very salvation, the sense that it says we have a spirit of adoption. Abba, Father. It's not something that you just intellectually grasp and, okay, tell me, yeah, Father. No, no. What we're saying is the spirit gives you this spirit of adoption. It's something you feel. 
And so what we are preaching is that the Holy Spirit is experiential. This is not an intellectual faith. This is not something that you're just going to come to with your mind. It is entirely something experiential. And if you're worried, oh, what do you mean by experiential? And this is not new. John Wesley, George Whitfield, The Great Awakening, that was very much one of their key things, having come out of the Moravian movement. The Holy Spirit is experiential and our faith is experiential. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement, assent, belief. It's that God actually changes you and you experience something. So that is my prayer for today, that we would come with this sense of expectation that if you haven't got it, let us desire it, let us ask for it. We're told, and I could spend a lot more on this, but it's a gift, it's something we ask for. Jesus said, how much more will the the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that is our request for today, that you would ask him for your Holy Spirit, that we would have everything in his spirit that he desires for us to have and that we would be awakened as a church. So please join me in prayer, in praying as we go through the rest of this series because we are wanting to look in a mirror. We're going to do less teaching. Um, This is a prelude. We're going to have one more sermon like this uh, in two weeks' time after church camp where we talk in detail about the experience that the apostles had in, in Pentecost with the Spirit. And then we are going to literally just let the Scripture do all the talking. We are going to read big chunks of Scripture every week. And we believe that in that, the Holy Spirit will be doing the talking because we're told that these words are spirit and life and that if we have the right attitude as we look upon it, we would know and feel something of him. So that's my prayer. Please pray with me now. That's all right. Lord, I pray that we would have a godly expectation of what you have for us in your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we will not settle for less. And I pray that we would know when it happens, Lord, because... I get the sense that whenever, when the, when the disciples received this promise, there was no sense of, oh, is that all? But it was something wonderful, amazing. It was so captivating that it fundamentally changed them and they just could not stop helping but express themselves to everyone and everywhere they went. So I pray, Lord, that we would have a godly expectation regarding your Holy Spirit, that you would indeed fill us as your people, that you would unite us as a body of believers to believe in what it is that you have for us, Father, And that we would be willing to lay aside every weight, lay aside everything of the flesh in order to receive from you, Lord, your Holy Spirit. With everything that you have in store for us, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.